Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the channel. Today, I will have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Matthew Romaniello, Associate Professor of History at Weber State University. We will discuss his new book, Enterprising Empires, Russia and Britain in 18th Century Eurasia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. In his book, Dr. Romaniello, who had previously written on empire building, economic developments and commodities in early modern Russia and Eurasia, examines the workings of the British-Russia Company and the commercial entanglements of the British and Russian empires in the long 18th century. This innovative and highly readable monograph challenges the long-held views of Russian economic backwardness in the early modern period and stresses the importance of personal histories and individual agency in global economic dynamics. Dr. Romaniello, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your book. Uh, Well, thank you for inviting me, and I appreciate you having taken the time to read the book. As is customary on the channel, I would like us to start by positioning enterprising empires within your intellectual and academic trajectories. How did your previous research and your training influence the writing and the research of the book? Uh, That's a a very excellent question. Uh, I think it came together from some different strands uh, that I had been working on earlier in my career. Uh, And I definitely think that the starting point might have been that I became very reliant on using travel narratives inside the classroom. Uh, whether I'm covering European history, East European history, or world history, which I spend a lot of time with, uh, travel narratives were always a really rich source. So thinking about more than one culture at a time and raising discussions about how different cultures viewed each other. Um, so I had been working off and on thinking about what can I do with travel narratives. I finished my first book, which was about Russia's uh, first conquest of a Muslim state, uh, the Khanate of Kazan inside its borders. And I had designed this uh, idea that I would actually work on what happens when Russians travel to the Middle East uh, and India, and how did Russian uh, travelers, merchants, diplomats uh, view that world. Um, At the same time, I had this long interest in uh, talking about commodities history, as you mentioned, particularly tobacco. Uh, Russia had the world's longest ban on uh, tobacco sales um, in history uh, in the 17th century. And I had been working off and on on that. I had worked on an edited volume uh, that we put together about the history of tobacco in Russia, and I thought I was done with it. But while I was reading these travel narratives, I realized travel narratives are a great source for talking about consumption uh, and practices and how that reflects uh, trade networks, where things are moving, what moves with those products. And suddenly it all came together uh, in terms of this project, uh, using travel narratives to sort of uh, draft a narrative or at least frame the narrative where I could get to the underlying economic uh, trade consumption issues that are actually revealed in the process. Um, And so I think at this moment in time, it sort of pulled together all these different ideas 
about where I could be working and, and where I could have a successful intervention. And it turned out raising a bunch of, I think, really important issues for world history in particular that I hadn't considered when I actually started just reading, you know, this Russian head off to the uh, Iran and 1630s. What did he see? I didn't really know what it was going to become 10 years later. Wonderful. And the reader immediately realizes that this is a non-conventional economic history. Uh, you focus on individual historical actors as a generative force in the early modern history of global economic exchanges. Could you say a few more words about your methodology and how and, and why you've decided to focus on these narratives instead of hard economic data as is uh, conventional in the field? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I will say the first time I ever uh, gave a paper on uh, Russian economic history, which was uh, while I was actually finishing my first book, I was on this panel called New Frontiers in Russian Economic History, I think we called it. And each one of us started our presentation by saying, I am not an economic historian. Uh, I'm still not an economic historian. I was really trained as a cultural historian. I'm interested in rhetoric and narrative uh, and understanding the way that people saw the world around them and each other. Um, Economics was actually a really interesting arena to sort of intervene in this way, because uh, since I had been using so many travel narratives, I find merchants to be highly unreliable narrators. And so it really raised the questions for me, why do we, find, why do we have so much faith in economic data telling us uh, this version of history? Uh, and, and what I hope to show in the course of the book is really that when you put uh, the personal narratives in, the way they're trying to motivate responses from governments, from other merchants you really understand that economic data only gives us one sense of the development of the global economy. Uh, there's a far more complicated story working. Fundamentally, it comes down to a basic principle. Merchants never talk about successful trade. Merchants are always trying to talk about the parts of the trade that fail. Uh, when they're asking the government to intervene, when they're asking for uh, tax relief, tariff relief, better rates, they don't talk about how much money they're making off hemp and flax. They talk about all the parts of the trade that are going on through the Baltic that are in a state of collapse. Uh, and it's interesting to see the way that merchants go about trying to motivate public opinion in the 17th and 18th century, which I don't necessarily think is the way that we start with economic history. But for me, it's a really interesting approach to the topic because it lets people who don't find economic data compelling find a part of the story that lets them understand what's happening, that puts a uh, personal perspective back into the forefront of this narrative. Um, it fits into a bigger issue that goes on with uh, world history. Um, I am the uh, editor of the journal World History these days, so this is a concern of mine, uh, which is that frequently when we look at global economic forces, we lose the human perspective. Uh, it's, it is an abstract process, the way that the world is developed. Uh, it is an abstract process talking about development or underdevelopment. But when you can actually talk about the way that it impacts a person, it has a lot more impact, not only uh, on myself personally, I understand it in a different way, but I think it's easier to convey that information to audiences who might find just the data itself confusing or off-putting. Uh, and so I think humanizing the data, restoring personal agency uh, to a process that's global in scope, I think is a really valuable way of telling a really complicated narrative. Wonderful. This is a great way to start talking about the book itself. And could you perhaps give us a bit of prehistory uh, to myself and, and our listeners? Where is Russia in the late 17th century? And what are British merchants trying to achieve in this space and, and how? I, uh, that's a uh, very good question. Um, part of, so the 
the main set of actors, I think, in the book are the, the British Russia Company. Uh, the Russia Company is the very first joint stock company formed in British history. They're established in the middle of the 16th century. They precede the much better known East India Company by 50 years. Uh, so they had been long-term actors in Russia. Um, their goal moving to Russia was always to find um, not only new commodities, but new routes of access uh, to Asia. Uh, Russia's doing the same thing at the same time. Russia's trying to take its uh, position in the world, uh, sitting in the middle of Eurasian crossroads, sitting in the middle of the Silk Roads, uh, thinking about how it has economic opportunities on both fronts. Uh, the quest for resources, um, wealth are, are sort of natural for both these places. And so for a while, they're very cooperative, um, uh, the two countries. Uh, this is a group of foreigners who've come in to establish a new trade for Russia initially in the 16th century. Um, other actors from Europe come into Russia following the same pursuit of uh, commodities, both from inside Russia, things that Russia is already producing, hemp, flax, um, tar, and pitch, uh, but also trying to exploit Russia's access to Asia. Uh, so the Dutch arrive at the beginning of the 17th century. They establish a successful silk trade with Iran. Um, as the Dutch are moving goods through the country with the assistance of Armenian merchants, the Russians can follow those routes and then develop them on their own. The Russians were also trying to develop those routes. So you have an international uh, commercial network being established throughout Russia. And as Russia needs resources in the 17th century, it becomes increasingly active in trying to control um, this uh, uh, cross-transit trade as well as uh, its own economic development. Um, the British fall out of favor. Uh, by the end of the 17th century, uh, there's very few British merchants operating inside Russia at all. And uh, the British government, being the British government, sees it as a potential avenue for a new trade, even though they've been there for more than 100 years at this point, but looking for new markets, looking for new access. Um, the way that the British acts of navigation structure the world is to divide it into a series of regions where different companies have the right to operate. Uh, there is the East India Company operating, uh, which has access to everything from the Cape of Good Hope out to Japan um, in the abstract. Uh, the Levant Company is a British company of merchants that operates in the Ottoman Empire. Um, it had the special concession to also buy um, products being produced in Iran that came overland into the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so they're also involved in the Middle Eastern trade on more than one front. Uh, and then the Russia company, this very old company with very few merchants, still has access to those markets through Russia. Um, and so they're trying to sort of revitalize their trade at a moment when Russia is trying to bring more revenue. Um, during the reign of Peter the Great at the end of the 17th century, um, these sort of all of these separate issues come to head because Peter's in an endless quest for new revenue and more funding to finance his own uh, expansion, both military and geographically, that he's intending to do. Um, and the British really sort of return as a revitalized force, trying to think about what can they gain from, from turning back into Russia at this time. Um, and so they have a common goal to um, expand and develop new markets, to be bringing new commodities in, to prosper um, on all fronts. Um, and so it's really a dynamic period. Um, over the course of Peter the Great's reign, I think his relationship with foreign merchants really changes. Uh, during his lifetime, the Dutch really fell out of favor and the British really take over um, the foreign market. And that's the position they hold, uh, the largest community of foreign merchants raising the greatest revenue from foreign trade throughout the 18th century um, are the British merchants. Um, it's not a smooth process. It's not every year that's like that, but generally uh, they become 
an overwhelming force um, in Russia's foreign commerce. And part of what they're always interested in is how Russia is positioned and what else can they access through Russia um, with the long-term goal for themselves. Could the British Russia company ultimately end up as a legitimate uh, competitor for the East India company? Uh, and to do that, they want Russia's access to China, Central Asia, the Middle East. Um, and so that's the story I was trying to follow. A great segue into my next question. Do you see yourself as contributing to what John Darwin has termed the Eurasian turn? Because when most of us think about the 18th century and these global uh, connections, links, and exchanges, we usually think about maritime, maritime links. And uh, the book strongly focuses on land trade uh, and British attempts to use Russia as a post from where or a platform from, platform from which they can access King uh, China or Safavid Iran? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, I, uh, the longer answer is that's uh, it, no, that's actually not what I originally thought I was doing. Um, it's interesting how it, it ended up. Um, there is a, there's a broader discussion, I think, about Eurasianism, but also about the decline of the Silk Road. There's a sort of longstanding narrative out in the field that in the 18th century, the Silk Road declined because of the dominance of maritime trade. Uh, what that narrative sort of loses is that doesn't mean that the trade evaporates. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's not all sorts of innovations going on inside Eurasia. Uh, it's just different trade is flowing through different channels. Um, part of it is there's really no one actor. Um, it's very easy for historians when they're talking about the world to be like Britain was doing X, but British merchants have competitive interests. They have different goals. Um, and the merchants operating in the uh, Russia company um, are not the same group of merchants operating in the East India Company. And uh, Russia provided an access for my merchants, the British merchants, to have uh, access to those markets. At least that's what they're hoping to, to manage to achieve. And so here's a group of British actors in the era of maritime trade trying to exploit overland connections. Um, Russia is, uh, the Russian government itself is really willing to support this process because these are Russia's own connections that it's been investing in and developing. Um, while the British are acting, uh, the Russia signs its first trade treaty with China. Um, towards the end of the 17th century, it signs a new trade treaty with China, the um, Treaty of Kiatka uh, in 1730-ish. I think it's 1730. Uh, but so Russia's investing in its own uh uh, trade across the um, its empire, trying to exploit it. Um, for a long time, we didn't actually have a good handle on how much trade was flowing through Russia. And it's actually a problem of access to records. Um, uh, those of us that don't have easy access to the Russian archives have frequently relied on this uh, major collection of documents that were produced um, from the city of Astrahan. Uh, Astrahan's uh, port on the Caspian, but it was also officially Russia's entry point from all of Asia. Um, if you come in the border from Central Asia or China, in theory, before you entered European Russia, you should enter it by going through the customs post at Astrahan. Um, but the version that we have access, the published records were actually um, exist, though they're edited. Um, they focus more on the trade that's happening with Astrahan coming across from the Caspian than what's coming overland. Um, but we had no access to trade records from the, the border post in Kiatka. Um, and so how much trade was arriving in Kiatka versus what arrived in Astrahan when it's crossing six time zones of space uh, was sort of also vanishing. So uh, the internal dynamics of what's going on in Siberia as it's developing, um, I think we're only getting a handle on now more successfully. 
Um, uh, you know, a recent book by Erica Monahan uh, on the merchants of Siberia does a really wonderful job thinking about the internal dynamics of what's going on uh, in that region um, by looking in local archives uh, throughout Siberia for its sources rather than getting to the endpoint at Astrahan. Certainly, there's been a lot of great work done on uh, merchants operating throughout Central Asia. Um, and so we're getting a more complex understanding of the dynamics. Uh, there is a lot of internal consumption going on. Um, and so uh, those bits that remained internal to Eurasia, especially in inner Eurasia, are really lost to the people who are focused on the maritime trade. Um, I would never claim that the uh, overland trade in the 18th century is larger than the maritime trade, but I don't think it diminishes nearly to the scale that has always been offered. In fact, there's multiple actors, uh, very high volumes of good, very high value, um, always ongoing. Um, and so part of this is to reconstruct how a place like Britain, which we so heavily associate with overland trade, is still heavily invested in, in fact, uh, maritime trade for Britain, still heavily invested in the uh, this overland process because there's a group of merchants whose only economic rights are to access things overland. And so they don't give that up just because the East India Company is making a lot of money elsewhere. Um, and so uh, the market's a lot more complicated, has a lot more moving pieces than we have tend to give it credit for. And so uh, relating that story, I think, does sort of reveal the persistent vitality of Eurasia. I think when you get to the greater transportation breakthrough in the 19th century with the arrival of the steam engine and um, the, it shifts a little bit more because the volume of goods and the speed that you can move over water becomes significantly larger. Um, the 18th century is also a little bit of a unique phenomenon because there's still certain products that European logic said were better if they never went over water. Um, medicinal rhubarb um, is definitely one of those products from China. Uh, it's in incredibly high demand in the 18th century in Europe, and it persists into the 19th century as a major trade good. Uh, it was well known by medical authorities in the 18th century if it was exposed to too much water, it lost its efficacy um, as they understood it. And so trying to transport it over land was always valuable. And so one right that the Russia company never lost was the right to import medicinal rhubarb from China through Russia, because it was thought to be a higher, better quality product than anything the East India Company could take from the southern ports of China and had to move over land. Um, another product that's actually interesting in that category is tea. Um, it was well known that tea was better if it hadn't been exposed to too much sea air. Um, and so the tea that Russia can import directly from China, particularly its green tea, was always thought to be of a superior quality uh, to what was available through the East India Company ships, at least in the 18th century. Eventually, the volume of consumption of tea coming from the East India Company far overwhelms what's coming on the overland routes. Uh, but there is always a knowledge that the better product came overland. Um, and that's really something that merchants are very actively pursuing, because how do you market the products back at home? How much value does it hold? when it finally arrives, is actually something of great importance to them. It's not just about the total volume, uh, the specific value, the quality of it was also part of that story. Um, and I guess I would sort of go back to an earlier point. I think that's one of the things that's lost sometimes with the economic data, which really gives us lots of big numbers, but doesn't really try to always, at least doesn't always qualify them, thinking about what that data means um, and what it signifies. Uh, there may have been a smaller volume of trade moving through Russia to reach Western ports, but in fact, the quality was always thought to be superior to what was coming to the maritime routes. Indeed. And I was particularly 
fascinated by a narrative of a man called John Elton, who mm-hmm. he basically rescued from, from historical oblivion. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about Mr. Elton and could you illustrate the methodology uh, that uses these individual cases to elucidate large-scale economic processes? Uh, well, I love John Elton. I'm happy that you brought him up. Uh, I do think uh, John Elton took over this book, um, which was not how it started out its life. Uh, but once I found him, I, I couldn't sort of let his story go. So John Elton um, is is uh, born to a notable family in Britain at the beginning of uh, the 18th century. He apparently claims he has a career as a merchant captain, but if it happened, it's very short. Uh, by the time he's in his early 20s, uh, he actually enters the Russian government service as a cartographer based on his maritime experience. He joins a famous cartographic expedition inside Russia, um, heading south uh, to reach uh, what becomes the new city of Orenburg, uh, which he figures out the longitude of. Um, he's so successful on his cartographic expedition, he actually gets hired by the government, Russian government, to map the deaths of the Caspian Sea so they can have more navigation, more trade with the Middle East across the Caspian. Uh, in 1734, the British government signs um, its new trade treaty uh, with the Russian government, and it notably included a clause that allowed the British merchants to uh, move across the country to Astrahan and then move to Iran across the Caspian and buy silk there and then import it directly. Um, in that period, from about the beginning of the 1730s up to about the 1760s, um, the trade coming through Astrahan uh, was actually the most valuable port in the Russian Empire. There's significant problems going on in the Baltic with too many wars and too much piracy, and so the trade's being interrupted that's leaving the Baltic ports. And so Russia's heavily invested in trying to develop its Eurasian connections, and Astrahan is the center of that. Um, and so the Russian government actually offers this arrangement to the British to try to get even more merchants involved in its own trade between Astrahan and Iran in this era. Uh, so the British Russian company suddenly inherits this right that they can actually go to Iran for the very first time through Russia and buy silk. Um, it's at that same point in 1735, the East India Company is actually expelled from Iran uh, during its civil war. Uh, and so the Russia company suddenly discovers it's potentially the only group of British merchants that can reach Iran to buy its valuable silk products through Russia. And so it's a great opportunity. They want to make sure they, they take uh, full advantage. And so they turn to the person um, in Russia that actually knows the most about navigating the Caspian, and that's John Elton, the British person. So Elton leaves uh, Russian service, goes to work for the um, Russia company, leading the first expo- exploratory mission down to Iran to see if he can sell British wool um, in Iran and buy silk, which happens in 1739. Uh, in 1740, he gets back uh, to Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, and gets special permission from the Russian government to set himself up as uh, the leading merchant. He actually constructs new ships um, on the Volga River so that there will be a different type of ship operating in the Caspian that can take a higher volume of goods. Uh, the trade looks like it's going to be very successful inside the country. Um, but uh, Elton then does something that the Russian government did not approve of. He enters uh, Nadir Shah's service, um, the emperor of Iran, to construct a new navy on the Caspian for the Iranian government which directly threatens Russian interests. Uh, And so the Russian government uh, immediately complains to Britain once they find out, takes a couple of years by the time they're talking about the distances involved, that Elton has stepped over the line and has gone to work for Nadir Shah. 
Um, and so the company first investigates his activities. They clear Elton, says he's done nothing wrong. Um, in my favorite document I think I ever read, the government, the British company's argument to the British government is if Elton hadn't started constructing the Navy, someone else would have, so the Russians can't be mad at him. Um, that uh, apology, if you want to call it that, doesn't work. Um, so uh, the company will fire Elton, and then the company tries to shift all blame for the entire situation on Elton personally and not on the company. Uh, they don't assuage the problems uh, with Russia. The Russian government removes their right to trade in Iran, um, which happens in 1747. So they only have about six, seven years at most when they actually have access to Iran. Um, Elton, uh, once he's dismissed from service with the Russian company, actually goes and lives full time in Iran. Uh, he's actually killed in part of the civil war that's ongoing uh, by 1750. Um, from the British perspective, they think, well, that's all settled. Elton's dead. Um, no more scandal. Uh, and that's, um, I'm not being disrespectful to the memory of Elton. That's actually how they write about him in the documents. Why would the Russians still be mentioning Elton? He's dead. The situation's over. Um, but in fact, they can't, uh, no argument that they can offer gets the trade restored. Um, so for the first length of the, the Anglo-Russian trade treaty in 1734, um, which uh, expires in 1749, gets renewed a few times. They can't ever get the Iran clause restored. They can't go back to Iran. When they're negotiating what eventually becomes the Anglo-Russian Trade Treaty of 1766, the follow-up treaty, uh, the negotiations go on for really 10 years, and the sticking point always is the Iran clause and the role of, of John Elton. Um, and uh, whatever they complain about why the Russians won't give them access back to Iran, uh, they just think that Elton is the cause. And so he, he floats long after his death. He's being mentioned by the Russian government and by the British government as the specific problem uh, that happens. Um, and one of the things that was really fascinating to me is first, uh, Elton has to write his own narrative about his original voyage in 1739, because uh, though there's a trade treaty sign that gave the British the right to get to Iran, the acts of navigation, the British acts of navigation don't allow the Russian company to go into Iran. It's the exclusive privilege of the East India Company. So first the company has to persuade parliament uh, to adjust the acts of navigation to allow them to have this right to trade. Um, and that's going on in 1740, 1741. There's a lot of public discussion about the trade and its possibility happening in London while Elton is constructing his boats back at home. And then the first time he gets in trouble with the Russian government, uh, the company's just finally gotten the legal right to pursue this trade. And then suddenly it's taken away from them. So uh, trading with Iran was a 200-year goal of British merchants going into Russia. Uh, they get the right in 1734. They try it for the first time in 1739. In less than eight years, it's gone. They spend the next 40 years trying to negotiate with the Russian government to get it back. It's definitely a sticking point in all negotiations about his personal activities. Um, the British-Russia company keeps on creating new narratives to come up with different justifications for how it's happening to try to persuade the British government that there's a chance they can get the trade back. They just say the right words to the Russian government to get forgiveness. Um, and so here's a person who was at best a, a footnote. Um, uh, there are definitely people who study Iran who are familiar with Jonas Hanway's narrative about British overseas trade with the Middle East um, that's produced in the 1750s. Hanway is the first person who apologizes for Elton and says he's above reproach. Uh, when he publishes his four-volume History of Iran um, in English, 
Uh, he puts all the blame on Elton. He says everyone in the company did the right thing. Everyone in Russia is really wonderful. Uh, it's just that Elton personally was to blame. Um, and so if you had any knowledge of him, it's because you've read this book from the 1750s and you've seen Hanway's version of what happened, but the archival version was completely lost. Um, Elton's multiple narratives about his travels and his transit, the people who traveled with Elton were completely lost to history. Uh, personally, they hated Elton. That was a wonderful find in the archive. He was apparently not a good man uh, right from the start. Um, so the complexity of uh, the events on the ground were definitely lost. The way that the company shifted the narrative uh, and kept on trying to uh, put the shift the blame onto different people to get the trade restore was lost. And then the fact that if we're thinking about the long-term history of, of Russia and Britain and their trade negotiations, Elton, a person who worked for both governments, had been lost completely from the narrative and had never been discussed. Uh, there is a couple books that, um, earlier books that have been published uh, one in Russian, one in English, that had looked at the 18th century trade between Britain and Russia, and neither of them actually mentioned Elton as part of the story. Uh, and that was really fascinating to me, that you could have this really pivotal figure um, that is so prominent in the archives, um, who wrote his own narrative, his 100-page narrative in his hands about his experiences and the travels and what happened. And he'd been completely lost. Um, and I do think the reason why he was lost is because Economic history focused on trade data tends to tell us narratives of success. Uh, the British and Russia um, are uh, very profitable. Um, in fact, the second half of the 18th century, the second most profitable um, British company is the Russia company. Um, it's making about half the profits a year that the East India Company is making, but that's about uh, twice as much as any other company that's operating for Britain in that era. So they're hugely successful very profitable in uh, the big trades that are going on for them, which is really in hemp um, and tar and flax. Uh, so Elton's um, failure in Iran and the story of trying to trade silk was just this story of failure that didn't quite fit in the overarching narrative about you know huge British success. And I actually don't know how you can tell the story of the British and lose Elton in the process because he occupies so much of the conversation. Um, for both sides. He keeps on being brought up. He keeps getting discussed. He's a cautionary tale for both sides. Um, uh, he worked for both sides, which I think is really fascinating. I think the men that work between these empires, these cosmopolitan figures that follow really their own careers and make their own choices really give us different perspectives. But he was so fundamental to the story of trade, I couldn't figure out why he'd been lost. And so putting him back into the narrative to understand uh, in far more complexity about the genuine problems this relationship has uh, between these two empires, I thought was really important. Um, coincidentally, I also don't want to lose him. Uh, there is the huge diplomatic shift that happens in the middle of the 17th century between Britain and Russia in the Seven Years' War. Um, one of the precipitating factors in the break between their relationship is that their diplomatic relationships falling apart. It's not only about Elton, but in those conversations about their current status, um, when they're negotiating whether Russia's going to come in uh, on either side of the war, Elton is there. Um, and this recent scandal that's gone on where a British merchant has tried to help an enemy of Russia, Iran, is there. Um, and so that's actually part of the story that relates to an arena where it's never been discussed. It's in diplomacy. It's in the military negotiations. He's part of that narrative as well. And so having left him out of the story, of Anglo-Russian relations in the 18th century, I don't understand how you tell that narrative. I don't know how you can avoid how difficult the relationship was without him being put back into the story. I've also found it 
incredibly striking how effectively the book moves from the micro to the macro um, level of historical analysis. And much like Bin Wang and Pomerantz in the case of Yangtze China and the Chinese imperial system, you offer a forceful re-evaluation of Russian economic strength before, let's say, 1800. Um, how does the book counter uh, the traditional thesis about the, the, the rise of the West? Uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, that struck you as being an important conclusion. That was something I was very concerned with. Um, I do, uh, I have worked in the field of world history. Um, and so I'm very familiar with the narratives. And, and one of the things you're tinning, uh, talking about is uh, the sort of arguments about divergence theory. Um, and it's a general shift in the way that we've looked at global economic development to try to respect and understand uh, the overwhelming dominance of the, of the global economy of Eastern empires, particularly China and India, which are overwhelmingly sig- far more significant uh, than anything that's going on in Europe um, in the 17th and 18th century. And then there's this dramatic shift where industrialization comes along and things change. And so there's been a lot of investigating, trying to sort of rediscover what inspires divergence, what has led to um, the eventual success of the West. Um, For a long time, Russia had been completely left out of this narrative uh, entirely. Um, When world systems theories developed, looking at different regions of global development, um, there was major regions of the world, which included Europe and China, um, and Russia doesn't fit. Uh, In the 1970s, Russia's identified as being in the semi-periphery. It's not completely undeveloped, but it's certainly not part of the first world of development. Uh, that strikes me as odd because you don't spend as much time uh, investing in their economy, uh, trying to manipulate the markets, find resources if you think there's nothing happening there. And so trying to fit Russia into that narrative was always very important to me. Um, uh, it's it's a confusing place uh, because, especially when we think about the fact that if you're looking at the success of uh, British economic companies in the 18th century, Overwhelmingly, the most uh, profitable is the East India Company. And then making about half of that per year is the Russia Company. And then there's the others. The others have actually gotten more attention uh, than the Russia Company. Uh, I'm thinking particularly um, of uh, the British African Company, which is involved in the safe trade, uh, which is a horrifying process in its own. But it's uh, as an economic development of engine, um, it's, it's not having the same level or record of success and so how do you tell a story of British economic development and leave out the Russia company in its role? Um, and part of it is because it's difficult because Britain's relationship with Russia is so bad. Uh, Russia may not, Russia is very far from being the economic success that China is. I would never claim otherwise. But there's only two countries in the world in the second half of the 18th century where Russia, ha- where Britain has a negative balance of trade. And one of them is Russia. Because in terms of the 18th century, Russia is a very successful country in terms of its economic development. Um, and so... Uh, it's producing a tremendous amount of resources. It has these vast global networks that are developing. Um, it's producing things that Britain desperately needs uh, for its own economy. Um, there is no British Navy without Russian natural resources that are being produced and developed. Um, Russia is producing finished goods. Uh, they're not just selling raw materials. They're, they're selling sailcloth. They're selling rope. Um, they're selling timbers prepared for ships. Uh, they're preparing pitch. They're preparing soap. Uh, they're selling... Things like Isinglass, which the British brewing industry is completely dependent on, is produced inside Russia. So they're producing finished goods that have high value um, that Britain's dependent on. And so it's sort of grappling with the narrative, why don't we consider Russia to be as much of a challenge 
uh, for Britain as they do China. Um, and it's sort of just thinking that way through. Uh, and so one of the things I tried to grapple with uh, in the book is thinking about what ultimately happens where Russia finally becomes unsuccessful. Um, there's a longstanding narrative that exists in the literature that Russia was economically backward, um, and it's driven by the role of serfdom. Um, serfdom persistence in the 19th century, then they have to scramble to industrialize, um, and they're behind, at the end of the 19th century, the economic development that's going on in a place like Britain, the United States, or France. Um, the, the problem is you can't project that uh, underdevelopment at the end of the 19th century back even a century because in the 18th century, Russia is very successful in terms of its economy. It has an uh, enormously uh, favorable balance of trade. It has the ability to spend and supply its own army, supplying the largest army in Europe uh, for a while. So um, what's going on uh, there? And it's, you know, it's sort of uh, the end of my story about how things start to shift as you get into the 19th century. Um, one of which is most of the products it's producing in the 18th century are being derived from the natural world, even if they're finishing the products there. Um, and so as industrial alternatives arrive, uh, they tend to replace things that Russia can produce out of the natural world, um, which happens more than once. Um, obviously, the labor supply is very different uh, in the West versus what's going on in Russia as well. Um, but when we start to think about those sorts of factors, uh, lines on the natural world, difference in labor supply, you end up with a very similar story to what's going on in China. Not of scale, um, but these are the similar sort of factors that we talk about, about how the West rises and eventually displaces uh, the East with Asian uh, with technology. And so I think you can include Russia among those places that's a very successful early modern state. Um, and then it runs into the same sort of uh, economic transition problems as you move into the modern era later than, in fact, I think a lot of people have given it credit for. Um, and that's an important story that needs to be retold. Um, and one of the things I suggest is that I think Russia's success in the 18th century may be part of its problem in the 19th century. When your economy is actually working on most fronts um, and you have sufficient resources and your population's growing um, and you have a favorable balance of trade with all your trade partners, uh, you don't need to uh, go through the practice of innovation. You don't need to find alternatives. That's in fact what's driving economic change in places like Britain and France. Uh, Russia didn't need it in the 18th century. So I think they're um, ultimately undermined by that process. But if backwardness existed in Russia, if underdevelopment was an issue, it's not a problem before the Napoleonic era. It's really a late 19th century problem where we start to see a significant shift. Wonderful. And shifting gears again, um, you successfully chart these knowledge networks and show how information sharing mechanisms, uh, what we would now call espionage perhaps, impacts uh, empire building and economic policy in both of these empires in the Asian uh, geopolitical arena, British and Russian. Um, how do these brokers, uh, how are they essential for or to the success of both empires? Uh, that's, um, I think, a really complicated question just because mm -hmm. there's so many people involved in the process. Um, there is definitely a cosmopolitan uh, community operating inside Russia and around the world. Um, I'm really fascinated by all the people that uh, spend some time working inside Russia and then work for other states. I think it's a fascinating process just to observe uh, their lives and their actions. Um, we have to give up any sense of um, nationalism, which is you know problematic to apply to the 18th century or earlier. Uh, people are just pursuing their careers and taking opportunities where they exist. Um, 
And so there is an international community that exists and operates in Russia that are contributing to the process. Uh, and they're always looking out for themselves before they're concerned about the, their employer. Um, and so there's multiple people who uh, go to enlist in, in Russian service, providing information, providing data, go on diplomatic missions for the Russians, but then take the information that they had and then use that to try to um, leverage themselves into different positions. And so they do fall into sort of these in-between spaces. Um, uh, Captain Joseph Billings, who leads a major uh, scientific expedition mapping the North Pacific at the end of the 18th century. Um, originally, uh, we know from documents, tried to apply to get a job as a captain with the East India Company. They don't hire him. Uh, instead, he enlists in service with Russia, which needed some sea captains with knowledge and experience. Um, and he goes off uh, and he's involved in this mapping expedition. And as soon as he gets back to St. Petersburg, he starts to give information to the British ambassador and he starts to send information off to the East India Company uh, because he's really concerned about his future career, what happens when he's not working for Russia. Um, and so the reason why the, his expedition initially gets sent off is the Russians are very concerned about the arrival of the British in the North Pacific um, and they wanted it successfully mapped and detailed. Uh, so that the British would respect their territorial claims to that region. And the person they hire to do that ultimately is giving those maps to the East India Company. Um, and so you can see that they sort of uh, are exploiting their own opportunities and have some influence uh, on, on with both sides about what's happening. I think probably the best example that I talk about in the book is, um, uh, is Lord McCartney, who actually leads a very famous uh, British diplomatic mission to China at the end of the 18th century. Um, goes in to China with all the latest correspondence about the relationship between Russia and China that have just had a diplomatic break. And he's trying to, part of his negotiations is relying on the information uh, taken out of the Russian government about what's going on inside the court in Beijing. Um, Russia throughout the 18th century has access to Beijing. Other foreigners do not. And so they're an excellent uh, source of information about what's happening and uh you know, grabbing the latest dispatch that comes into the foreign office is handed off to McCartney uh, to go in and uh, use, try to uh, exploit Russia's difficulties as a way of Britain getting greater access. Um, it created one of the oddities that I found in my research because uh, there's a set of diplomatic correspondence that's missing from the state papers collection in London um, that's actually sitting in McCartney's papers that are now housed at Yale University. Because, of course, that was literally the foreign office handed him those dispatches, which then got carried off to his personal papers as he went off to have this separate negotiation. Um, and so you can see, uh, we know that the British government really values the information that's being brought in by its men on the ground uh, reporting about these set of events. Uh, and they're trying to hope that it creates some opportunities. Uh, I will say I don't actually follow the opposite side of, of the way that Russia necessarily exploits them as well, um, though a new book by Greg Afinaginov um, looks specifically at that group of men, um, because it's not an uncommon process. Uh, there are lots of uh, people operating between empires, trying to find their way in their career, and the most valuable thing that they can uh, exploit is their information. Um, and so we see that happening quite regularly. It's not a surprise that the Russian Academy of Sciences is uh, full of uh, what were thought of as foreign experts because it's an opportunity for them to go into Russia, make a career for themselves, and then go back to a successful post um, in Europe. They find a way of exploiting that information while the information that they're gathering for the Academy of Science is still really generative. Um, John Elton really still falls into that pattern, taking the opportunity of being a cartographer to try to find commercial opportunities for himself 
um, when he went back to the Russia company. Uh, there's a series of uh, physicians and naturalists who work for the um, academy who do the same thing. It's a, it's a really common recurring process where uh, information is constantly flowing and it doesn't always flow through diplomatic channels. Uh, but when you can actually track it down, you can see how well it operates. Um, another example I mentioned um, in the book is uh, Samuel Bentham, Jeremy Bentham's brother. Uh, both Bentham brothers originally go into Russian service. Uh, after just a couple of years, Jeremy returns back to London, but Samuel stays in Russia in service. He's the director of mining in Siberia for a really lengthy career. Uh, he goes on a lengthy inspection to Siberia. Um, based on his observations, he thinks the opportunity at the end of the 18th century, he really recommends that Russia expand further south into China, taking over the entire Amur River Delta. Um, and when he gets back to St. Petersburg, he proposes this uh, to the Russian government that he thinks the time is right for them to actually lead this military expansion into the region, because from his perspective, China's weak, uh, and this solves many of Russia's problems in Siberia in terms of food supply and access to resources and easier access to navigation. Um, Jeremy Bentham actually panics in London um, because Samuel Bentham's reporting is trying to encourage the Russian government to expand, which would potentially interfere with the East India Company's plans for trying to have some influence in China. Um, and so Jeremy Bentham then goes to the foreign office in London and says, uh, my brother is up to the scheme that he's proposed to take over the Amur River Delta, uh, but I'm gonna explain to you how in fact it's much better for Britain than it is for Russia. Um, and so uh, it really shows up as a footnote uh, in the foreign office correspondence at that point, but it's all in the Bentham papers, you can sort of track down when the information arrives and where it's flowing and how they move goods around. And, and that's a pretty typical process, I think, just for the way that information flows and how it could be used or not. Um, many of those sorts of proposals, like uh, Samuel Bentham's, is not pursued. Um, and programs that aren't put into place are easy to ignore from the historical record. But I think if you're interested in the way that uh, these men try to operate within these empires and exploit the opportunities as they see them for themselves, you really need to sort of follow those voices as well to figure out where they fit in the overall narrative. There's also a very nice episode on piracy in the Baltic and the Black Seas. You use this to revisit Catherine the Great's efforts to regulate, police these waters, but also to structure, restructure uh, the Russian economy. Uh, what are your findings there? I, uh, the major one is that piracy is, is a major factor in Russian economic development. Um, I don't think that we necessarily expect that, uh, considering Russia's lack of a huge presence in the seas at any point in its history. They don't arrive until the 18th century. Uh, it's still relatively minor. Uh, but definitely when you're actually looking at uh, the trade data and the negotiations, the issue of piracy is prevalent throughout um, all of the documents because the Baltic ports were literally shut down for um, years at a time because the over-prevalence of piracy operating in the Baltic and in the North Sea. Um, letters of Mark are an 18th century phenomenon legalizing piracy uh, to control outcomes to stop the uh, flow of contraband goods during the war. Um, every government in Europe issues letters of Mark. Um, every time a war broke out and Britain was more or less at war with someone for most of the 18th century, letters of Mark would get issued. Um, any ship that was carrying something that was presumed to be contraband could be um, taken by uh, these licensed pirates, uh, these privateers. Uh, and Russia is very concerned in this process. Uh, Russia does not have a developed merchant navy. Um, most of Russia's exports that are leaving 
from the Baltic ports to go into Europe are traveling in foreigners' vessels, particularly British vessels. Uh, and so if the British keep getting involved in wars and issuing letters of mark, piracy can completely uh, impede trade. Uh, there is a lull um, in the Anglo-Russian trade in the 18th century, particularly from about the beginning of the 1730s through the end of the uh, Seven Years' War, um, where the trade had been increasing during the uh, Peter the Great's era at the beginning of the 18th century. It drops off, stays lower, and then suddenly the Seven Years' War comes to an end and it picks up and it's very successful from then on. Um, there had been a longstanding argument uh, among economic historians that the change was because Catherine the Great um, removed some of the tariff restrictions as she followed a program of economic liberalism. Um, my evidence uh, that I've seen in the archives is that that's not, in fact, what's happening. It's the end of piracy that trade suddenly resumed um, at a, and could proceed. And so goods are finally flowing again for the first time ever, uh, at least not for the first time ever, for the first time in a few decades. Um, and so then it steadily increases as letters of mark become less common towards the end of the 18th century. Um, uh, and it's sort of also confirmed because the economic policies that Catherine's most famous for in terms of her economic liberalization of the economy, as it's known, actually weren't first put in place by her. They come a decade earlier. She just reissues them. Uh, but since the economy really does turn around in the Baltic, she'd always gotten credit for her foresight and legislative breakthroughs. Um, but uh, all those policies were already on the books. They already could have had that change if it had been possible, but piracy was really the, the, the challenge um, that goes on. Uh, there's lots of sort of anecdotes along the way about various ships that run into problems. Um, I'm, I was really fascinated um, both by the number of times that people were accused of carrying things that were contraband during the war, but may or may not have been. If you wanted to take a ship, uh, you could just say they had some wartime contraband on it uh, and take it. There's no test to prove that it's actually on there when you do that. Um, but also uh, smuggling is incredibly prevalent. It's going on all the time. So anytime you look for something that was illegal, you're probably going to find something. Um, one thing that I definitely learned in the process of doing this research is the British were known throughout Europe as the worst smugglers of all Um Almost all other countries, uh, if you had arrived at a customs port, you could present your bill of lading, the document that said what was on board. Uh, taxes would be assessed based on that bill of lading, and then you would proceed. Uh, no one extends that privilege to the British. All their ships get um, investigated, and all the material gets gone through um, because the British are always smuggling. And whenever they get challenged on it, um, especially since they're so attached to piracy, uh, they used to write these really eloquent defenses of the right of property and how no one could ever question what sort of goods I was traveling with at any point, um, because you don't have the right, no foreign government should ever have the right to look at what I'm personally carrying. Um, and so it doesn't take much at any point for just issuing a letter of mark. Uh, they're always going to find something that was contraband. That ship can always be seized. Those goods can always be seized. So the fact that there's this uh, precipitous decline in trade um, in those decades, it's not in any way a surprise. It's just a reflection about how the trade operated. And I would like to um, end the conversation where you end the book with the appearance or the entry of American merchants uh, into the Russian trade who basically mark lost opportunities for the British in the early 19th century. Moreover, how does your narrative of the 18th century um, Lead, lead us into the 19th. Uh, uh, you argue that the roots of the British-Russian imperial rivalry, the so-called Great Game, later on, are to be actually found in the events and characters that you study 
so fascinately here in in enterprising empires. I, uh, g- great. I think that's two separate questions. I guess if I could just pull them apart. Uh, the first one is I think it's important to look at the Americans um, and the way that they arrive in the market, uh, despite all the back and forth that goes on between Britain and Russia in the 18th century. Um, Britain always was Russia's largest foreign trading partner in terms of the amount of revenue that was generated through taxes uh, in that trade. Um, the only period, the first time we see that relationship dramatically shift is once the um, Anglo-Russian War breaks out during the Napoleonic era, and suddenly all that trade flows into American vessels. And so for a few years, America is, in fact, Russia's largest trade partner. Um, that demonstrated to me that, in fact, America could have continued to carry on that trade. Many of the products that the Russians were buying um, from the West could be easily directly supplied from the new United States. They didn't have to return to Britain. Um, the new United States was also willing to buy the same products that the British were buying um, when they arrived. So it was a potential alternative uh, to the system. Uh, but the Napoleonic era comes to an end and Russia goes back to its old channels, which is to rely on the British as their leading foreign trade partner. I do see that that sort of leads into the second uh, part of that question, because it is, in retrospect, an enormous mistake uh, for the Russian government to have um, gone back to the British Uh when I take a step back and look at the book um, and I'm looking at the places where they get into these intense diplomatic uh, and economic conflicts, we're talking about them fighting over the trade with the Middle East and Iran and potentially in India, access to Central Asia, um, the trade with China, uh, where they're each trying to exploit each other's weakness at the end of the 18th century. And then even into the North Pacific, um, the actors in the North Pacific on the British side are different. Uh, the Russians end up um, in conflict with the Hudson Bay Company. But their arrival in the Pacific, uh, uh, trying to chart the Pacific, challenges Russian territorial claims to that region. Um, and then, and we know the future. Uh, if we're looking at what the great game is at the end of the 19th century, this long conflict over this Eurasian border, the Middle East, Central Asia, China, and even the North Pacific are the exact places where they uh, will eventually come into genuine territorial conflicts um, that lead to that fight. By the time you get to this moment when the Americans arrived at the beginning of the 18th century, they've already had conflicts in each of those places. Uh, and so uh, to a certain extent, I think we can predict uh, the future conflicts they have over access to the Middle East and Iran or the future access to India. Uh, they're already having those fights 100 years earlier, 150 years earlier, as the case may be. Um, and so it's a real curiosity for me. Uh, when there's a, a way out of um, it's Russia's reliance on Britain for trade um, that could have ultimately prevented some future conflicts. They don't take that step. In fact, they just go back to the system as it existed. Um, and I think that's one of the, the wrong detours because as long as they have this economic relationship um, that makes all of those diplomatic, military, geographic conflicts that are to come, I think, more uh, dangerous for the Russian government. Um, and so I, I wanted to really bring up the Americans and that moment at the end of the book, because I think it's a lost opportunity. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, the debates about Russian backwardness, I think, are true when you get to the end of the 19th century, because uh, the 18th century economy is so successful, it's so prosperous for the Russian government. Um, they run into this problem. Uh, and so, you know, where were the turning points where they could have made a different decision earlier on? I think not having turned back to the British would have been a smarter move in the long run. Um, that, that is counterfactual history, but I think the evidence is there. Um, I don't think we should be surprised that these countries run into diplomatic problems at the end of the 19th century. I mean, part of the point is that they're actually having conflicts for more than 200 years before that. 
But the idea that the commercial relationship was so successful and they had such a friendly relationship uh, in terms of uh, diplomacy and military for so long, uh, which sometimes it's treated as a surprise that suddenly they run into problems at the end of the 19th century. And I think the problems were always there. Um, it's just that this economic issue sort of obscures the dynamics of the on-the-ground issue. And on that note, has enterprising emp- where has enterprising empires led you? What are you currently working on? I, uh, part of what I'm, I think uh, I have two projects um, that I'm working on at the moment, one of which is actually based on sort of thinking about these cosmopolitans and the exchange of knowledge. I've really become fascinated in the uh, men operating in the Russian Academy of Sciences. Um, uh, particularly, uh, there's a group of Scottish doctors who are the czar's official doctors throughout the 18th century. Um, and while they're actually working for the state and, and looking at parts of the empire, uh, they're also trying to still run some schemes, which is just what the British do when they're in Russia, um, which are interesting to talk about. Um, the Russia ends up with this typology of imperial peoples um, based on their understanding of 18th century science, that science is um, being really brought in from Germany and Scotland um, and then imposed on the Russian subjects. And it affects the entire way they relate to their empire. Um, and so I've been following that through for a while. Uh, the second project actually sort of takes uh, comes out of the economic side. I'm very fascinated by the issue of divergence. I'm really fascinated by the way that industrial, uh, sometimes chemical replacements displace the natural world, which has a direct impact on Russia. And I sort of want to take a step back and think about that more as a global process, not just a uniquely Russian one. Dr. Emanuele, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining New Books in Eastern European Studies. Thank you.